Organic Aromas has unique and powerful diffusers that are quiet and require no heat and no water. You just add your essential oils and turn it on. Their diffusers are made from high quality recycled wood and hand blown glass and contain no plastic. Organic Aromas offers hand carved diffusers and recently began custom laser engraving as well, making it a perfect gift. They also have a complete line of pure essential oils, essential oil blends, and roll-on aromatherapy oils, which not only smell amazing, but are long-lasting. Organic Aromas products are high quality and have a long life. Each diffuser comes with a free one-year parts and service warranty. I've had my diffuser for about six years, and it still works perfect. The link is in the description. Hello again, and thank you so much for joining this episode. I hope you enjoyed my Halloween series episodes. Factitious disorder imposed on another also known as Munchausen by proxy, is a condition in which a parent or caregiver gives the appearance of health problems in another person, typically a child. This may include injuring the child or altering medications. The caregiver then presents the child or person as being sick or injured. People with this disorder are not motivated for money or material goods. They are looking for attention and sympathy. They make up illnesses in themselves or others like their children that, to gain the attention of healthcare workers, friends, and in today's world, online supporters. Parents are supposed to protect their children from harm parents with this disorder create symptoms of illness in their children in order to gain that attention and sympathy. As a result, they really do harm to the children um, in order to fabricate the symptoms. Their children receive, may receive unnecessary and often dangerous surgery and treatments, and the child really can become seriously ill and even die. That's why this syndrome is so hard to understand. Some people with this disorder will harm themselves in order to gain that attention, but the stories I'm telling today are about parents who harmed their children. The victims are usually children, but can also include elderly adults, disabled people, and pets. The disorder is considered a form of abuse. Although it's known as factitious disorder imposed on another, I will call it the commonly known name of Munchausen by proxy. Here are some shocking cases of Munchausen by proxy that are truly disturbing.
Mary Beth was born on September 11, 1942, in Dwaynesburg, New York. Her parents were Alton and Ruth, and she had a younger brother. Growing up, her mother spent most of her days working while her father was overseas fighting in World War II. Mary Beth grew up being shuffled between relatives. There was an incident where one of her older relatives told her that she was an accident and that she was an unwanted child. When her little brother was a teenager, Mary Beth often told him that he was the one that they wanted and that they never wanted her. Mary Beth tried to kill herself several times. In high school, she was an average student. She graduated in 1961 and wanted to go to college. Instead, she started working various low-paying jobs. She eventually settled as a nursing assistant at a hospital in Schenectady, New York. In 1963, Mary Beth went on a blind date with her friend, and she met Joseph. I couldn't find anything about Joseph's background other than he worked at General Electric, and he was a quiet man and seemed to take life easy. He and Mary Beth got along really well, and they decided to take the next step, and they got married in the spring of 1965. In May of 1967, two years after they married, they had their first child, a girl named Barbara. Three years later, in 1970, they had a boy named Joseph Jr. In October 1971, Mary Beth's father unexpectedly died of a heart attack. On December 26, 1971, they had a third child named Jennifer. Jennifer had acute meningitis and multiple brain abscesses. All of this had developed in utero. Uh, meningitis causes inflammation of the protective membrane surrounding the brain and the spinal cord. Acute meningitis is usually caused by a bacterial or a viral infection. If caught in time, acute bacterial meningitis can be cured with the appropriate antibiotic treatment, um, but delaying treatment can cause death. <clears throat> Jennifer never left the hospital, and she died on January 3rd, 1972, a week after she was born. Two weeks later, on January 19th, 1972, two-year-old Joseph was rushed to the ER. Mary Beth told nurses that he had a seizure and that he choked on his own vomit. Doctors looked him over, but found nothing wrong with him. They kept him in the hospital for observation for a couple days and then released him when they still found nothing wrong. A few hours later, he was released from the hospital on January 20th. Um, and... Then, later that day, Mary Beth brought Joseph Jr. back to the ER and he was declared dead on arrival. 
his death was listed as cardiopulmonary arrest, basically a heart attack. A two-year-old had a heart attack. On March the 1st, 1972, four-year-old Barbara was rushed to the ER due to convulsions. The next day, excuse me, sorry, she died after being unconscious for several hours. The hospital ruled her death as Ray syndrome. Ray syndrome is where a child's blood sugar level drops drastically while the ammonia and the acidity levels in the body rise, or in the blood rise. This causes the liver to swell, and swelling might also occur in the brain and cause seizures and loss of consciousness. On November 22, 1973, their four-year-old child, Timothy, was born. On December 10th, 1973, three weeks after he was born, Timothy was rushed to the ER and pronounced dead on arrival. Mary Beth told the doctors that she found him lifeless in his crib. They attributed his death to SIDS, Sudden Infant Death Syndrome, because they couldn't find anything medically wrong with him. SIDS, or Sudden Infant Death Syndrome, is a sudden unexplained death of a child under the age of one. It still can't be explained even after a thorough autopsy. In 1974, her husband Joseph was rushed to the hospital where he almost died of barbiturate poisoning. Barbiturates are drugs that are depressants. Basically, they cause sleepiness and relaxation. Even a low dose of this kind of drug can make a person seem intoxicated. Most overdoses usually include or usually involve mixing alcohol with the barbiturates or barbiturates and opiates. Uh, The overdoses tend to cause comas or death. Joseph found out that Mary Beth had gotten the pills from a friend of hers whose daughter had epilepsy. She was putting the pills in his grape juice. Joseph decided not to press any charges and they continued their marriage as normal. In March 1975, they had a fifth child, a boy they named Nathan. By September 2nd, Nathan died while he was in the car with Mary Beth. She told doctors she was driving with Nathan in his car seat in the front seat, and she'd noticed that he had stopped breathing. On August 1978, Mary Beth and Joseph were able to adopt a newborn baby named Michael. On October 29th, they had their sixth child, a girl they named Mary Frances. In January 1979, Mary Beth rushed Mary Frances to the ER. She told nurses that the baby was having a seizure. The baby came in 
unconscious, the staff was able to revive her. In their records, they listed it as aborted SIDS. In February 1979, Mary Beth rushed Mary Frances back to the hospital in full cardiac arrest. The staff revived her, but she had irreversible brain damage and was put on life support. Two days later, she died after they took her off life support. On November 19, 1979, <clears throat> they had their eighth child, Jonathan. March 1980, Mary Beth rushed to the hospital with Jonathan unconscious in her arms. The staff were able to revive him, but this time, due to the family history, they sent him to another hospital for a more thorough examination. <clears throat> hospital staff thought these issues were unfortunate family genetic issues. Doctors found no valid medical reason why Jonathan had stopped breathing, so they just discharged him and sent him home. A few days later, Mary, ba- Mary Beth <clears throat> rushed him to the hospital where he was declared brain dead. He died on March 24, 1980. On March the 2nd, 1981, Mary Beth took Michael to the pediatrician wrapped in a blanket and he was unconscious. She said that she couldn't wake him up and didn't know what was wrong. By the time the doctor looked at Michael, he was dead. Michael was their adopted child, so the theory of genetic of a genetic disorder in the family was no longer valid. Hospital staff began looking at Mary Beth differently. It went from sympathy to suspiciously. On August the 22nd of 1985, Mary Beth and Joseph had their ninth child, Tammy Lynn. On December 19th, 1985, Mary Beth had gone shopping with her neighbor, Cynthia. After they came back, Cynthia got a phone call from a frantic Mary Beth, and Cynthia rushed over to her house. Cynthia was a nurse. When she got there, she found Tammy Lynn lying in her crib with blood staining her pillow. She was not moving, breathing, and a pulse could not be found. They rushed her to the ER, but she was declared dead on arrival. On December 20th, 1985, after nine children had died, the Schenectady County's Department of Social Services visited the home. They had questions about Tammy Lynn's death. Both Mary Beth and Joe were taken to the police department for questioning. While being interrogated, Mary Beth confessed that she murdered Tammy Lynn, Timothy, and Nathan. She said she pressed a pillow over Tammy Lynn's face because the baby, quote, fussed and cried. 
She said that with Timothy and Nathan, quote, I smothered them with a pillow because I'm not a good mother. She was arrested and charged with the murder of Tammy Lynn. Bail was set at $100,000, which she paid, and she was released until her trial date. She later recanted her confession, stating that it was made under duress and that the police had threatened her. She also said that she had asked for a lawyer and her requests were denied. During the investigation, a lead forensic pathologist confirmed that Tammy Lynn's death was caused by smothering. Investigators started looking at the deaths of her other seven children. The only one they believed was an actual death and not a murder was Jennifer, the child who died of acute meningitis. On June 22, 1987, the murder trial of Mary Beth was started. It involved a lot of doctors and experts. Tammy Lynn's pediatrician testified saying that he suggested Mary Beth install a device that acts like an alarm that monitors the baby's heart rate and breathing. But Mary Beth and Joseph opted not to use the device, which was strange because they already lost some of their babies in the past from this unknown illness. Mary Beth previously said that her father was mean to her, physically abused her, and even locked her in a closet. But when she testified, she denied everything and said that her father never had any bad intentions, saying that she was hit by a fly swatter by her father because he had arthritis in his hands and that she got locked up in the closet because she deserved it. The trial lasted a month, and on January 17, 1987, 44-year-old Mary Beth was convicted of second-degree murder in Tammy Lynn's death. She received 20 years to life in prison, which is five years shorter than the maximum penalty of this crime. When she received her verdict, she started crying. Her husband, on the other hand, was overwhelmed and wasn't really sure what was happening. Joseph said that he had a conversation with his wife right after she was questioned by police and that she confessed that she had killed Tammy Lynn. But he thought that Mary Beth was innocent still. He told newspaper reporters that sometimes he was suspicious of his wife, but he convinced himself not to be. Mary Beth was taken to the Bedford Hills Correctional Facility for Women, where she immediately filed an appeal, saying that her confession wasn't given voluntarily and that evidence wasn't enough for her to be found guilty. Her appeal was denied. In 2007, she became eligible for parole and started her campaign of getting paroled. On February 5th, 2007, she was denied parole, citing, quote, incompatible with public safety, end quote, 
and letting out um, letting her out would diminish the seriousness of the crime. The decision was based on the following factors. Um, it says, uh, quote, you stand convicted of the serious crime of murder, which you caused the death of your infant daughter by smothering her with a pillow. This was a heinous crime. You were in a position of trust and violated that trust by taking a life of an innocent child. On January 26, 2009, she met with the parole board again. This time, her only explanation for what she did was that she was going through, quote, bad times when the murders occurred. When the parole commissioner asked Mary Beth about the charge and what she was going th- what was going through her head as her children were dying, Mary Beth said two things I wanted in life was to be married to someone who cared for me and to have children. And other than that, I can't give you a reason. Mary Beth maintained that SIDS was the cause of death for her other children. The the parole board again denied parole, stating that her remorse was, quote, superficial at best. She was eligible for parole again in January 2011. This time she said, after the death of my children, I lost it. I became damaged, worthless, a damaged, worthless person. And when my daughter was young, in my state of mind at that time, I believed that she was also going to die. So I just did it. Again, she was denied parole. When questioned about the murder during her 2013 parole hearing, she said she didn't remember doing it. She knows she did it, but she can't tell why she did it. It was noted that Mary Beth had certificates of achievement from nonviolence and anger management programs and that she worked for a chaplain. She had letters of support from people she had worked with in prison as well as um, letters from Georgetown Law School with some describing her as the most loving, generous, caring person they ever met and that she worked with AIDS patients in prison. She said that she would like to volunteer with such patients if released, and that some organizations have contacted her husband, Joseph, saying that they would be willing to have her as a volunteer. She would live with her husband if released, and he visited her once a month. She was denied again. In February 2015, the parole board again denied her release, finding that she continued to demonstrate no understanding nor any remorse for taking her child's life. She was denied parole for the sixth time in January 2017. The parole board asked her to return in 18 months rather than the previous standard of 24 months. 
Mary Beth was released on parole August 21st, 2018 at 76 years old. She served more than 31 years of her 20-year life sentence before being granted parole. Joseph supported her throughout her incarceration and was there for her release. As part of her release, Mary Beth will remain under parole supervision for the rest of her life. She has a curfew and must attend domestic violence counseling. As of November 2021, a Department of Corrections spokesperson stated Mary Beth lives a quiet life in Schenectady County in upstate New York. Lacey was born and raised in Decatur, Alabama. She was a single mother. She was lonely and desperate for attention. Lacey constantly posted on social media about her son's health struggles, and she even started a blog recording her search for a cure for whatever illnesses plagued him. Lacey moved to Florida and she and her son, Garnett, lived with her grandmother, Peggy. A short time later, she moved to the town of Chestnut Ridge, New York. In Chestnut Ridge, Lacey and Garnett lived in a community called The Fellowship, which housed elderly and disabled people. Lacey lived there with free room, board, and schooling for Garnett in exchange for providing care to the elderly residents. Garnett was free to run around in the safety of the community and play with other children. Lacey enjoyed looking after others. Before she moved there, she worked as a caregiver. Lacey told people at the fellowship that things haven't always been easy for her. She became pregnant with Garnett in 2008 when she was 20 years old. She told them that, sadly, Garnett's father, Blake, a police officer, died in a car accident. When Garnett was born, he was constantly sick, and she was in and out of hospitals with him and had multiple visits to different doctors. Blake ended up being a fictional character that she created. Garnett's biological father, Chris, was told that Garnett Garnett was not his son, and Lacey threatened Chris to keep his distance from her and Garnett. On January 17, 2014, Garnett was admitted to a New York hospital. He had a fever, pains in his stomach, headaches, and was suffering from seizure-like symptoms. He began to improve that night and the following night, but two days after he was first admitted, his condition worsened. Garnett was in a lot of pain. Tests taken by the hospital revealed that Garnett's sodium level was 182, a normal blood sodium level is between 135 and 145. 
When he was admitted, it was 1.38. Doctors could not understand why and how it was so high. A sodium level of 182 could lead to death. The hospital referred him to a specialist, um, a specialized children's hospital because his condition was so serious. Uh, within a day, Garnett's sodium levels were brought down, but the high sodium levels had already caused his brain to swell, which caused brain damage, and he was placed on life support. Two days later, he was taken off of life support and declared dead on January 23, 2014. Nobody at the hospital could figure out how Garnett's sodium levels had gotten so high while he was in the hospital. They believed the only explanation was that someone had administered them. And the only person they believed who could have done that was his own mother, Lacey. They reported their suspicions to police, and the police began an investigation. Police went to Lacey's home. They found medicine in a cupboard behind a large container of salt, which was strange if your child needs a lot, like constant med daily medication, you would think that that would be in front. In the living room, <clears throat> sorry, there was an IV type pole with a feeding bag hanging from it. Valerie, one of the other residents at Fellowship, told police that when Garnett was on life support, Lacey asked her to dispose of a feeding bag. Police obtained the feeding bag from Valerie and they took a second one from the trash at Lacey's home. They sent them away to be tested. Police discovered that Garnett had been sick since he was a baby. At two months old, he was in and out of hospitals with severe ear infections. Garnett could not hold any food down and was losing weight. His sodium level was found to be dangerously high at 166. At that time, Garnett, when Garnett was a baby, doctors were able to bring his sodium levels down, but did not find an explanation as to how it happened in the first place. When Garnett was just nine years old, nine months old, I'm sorry, when Garnett was nine months old, he was still sick and he could not keep food down, so a feeding tube was inserted. The feeding tube, known as a G-tube, allows nutrients to go directly into the abdomen, either through a hanging bag, a bottle, or a syringe. In 2013, a doctor was baffled as to why the G-tube was still in. At that point, Garnett was five years old, and he was a happy, healthy boy, and he had a good appetite but Lacey did not want to have that G-tube removed. Police received the test results from the two feeding bags from Lacey's house. Tests revealed that sodium was found in both feeding bags. 
Each bag had the equivalent of at least 69 small salt packets. Lacey was arrested and indicted by a grand jury on one count of murder in the second degree and one count of manslaughter in the first degree. The Westchester County Medical Examiner ruled Garnett's death as a homicide and noted that there was a toxic level of sodium in his body. The prosecution told the jury that when Garnett was admitted to the hospital, a video electroencephalogram was set up um, to rule out a seizure disorder. Basically, a video camera was placed facing the hospital bed to record any physical symptoms of seizures that um, he may exhibit. The footage was shown to the court as evidence. On January 19, 2014, footage revealed that Lacey took Garnett into the hospital room bathroom. She had a white cup and what appeared to be an attachment that connected to Garnett's G-tube. She brought them into the bathroom with her. Shortly after leaving the bathroom, Garnett became violently ill. He was suffering from abdominal pain and had several headache or had severe headaches. He was also dry heaving. The prosecution claimed that they were when they were in the bathroom, Lacey put salt in Garnett's G-tube. When Garnett improved, Lacey brought him into the bathroom again. Violent, or Garnett was violently ill shortly afterwards for a second time. <clears throat> and it looked like he was having a seizure, but the EEG did not show any seizure activity. It showed a significant slowing in the brain waves instead. This suggested a severe brain dysfunction. Doctors carried out various tests and a blood test revealed he had high sodium levels. It was then that they decided to transfer him to the more specialized hospital. Garnett was in critical condition and could not breathe on his own. At that time, he was diagnosed with hypernatremia, basically elevated sodium levels of an unknown cause. Two days later, it was determined that he was brain dead and that he would not survive. As a result, the life support machine was switched off. The prosecution called a number of doctors to testify about sodium levels. They all agreed that it could not go from 138 to 182 naturally. It was the prosecution's case that Lacey deliberately made Garnett sick as she liked the attention that she was getting. The prosecution told the court in a period of just two years, Lacey brought Garnett to 20 different doctors. She repeatedly told, repeatedly told them that he had various different medical conditions, which had already 
been ruled out by other doctors. The court heard that Lacey had internet searches on her computer for high sodium levels, dangers of high sodium, signs of high sodium. The searches were found three days before Garnett was brought, or the the searches were on the computer three days before Garnett was brought to the hospital. <clears throat> the prosecution believed that Lacey knew exactly what she was doing, and she knew that giving Garnett salt through his feeding tube would cause him to be ill. While Garnett was so dangerously ill in the hospital, Lacey continued to post photos of him on Facebook. These included photos she had taken after he suffered, and when she knew he was not likely to recover. The jury heard that after Garnett died, a treating physician called Child Protective Services. He believed that the hypernitremia was caused by the introduction of blood into the G-tube. An autopsy was carried out and the medical examiner agreed. It was the defense case that Garnett's death was a medical mistake. Their argument, this is Lacey's side, argued that Garnett did not receive the correct medication and that they gave him a rapid infusion IV solution and that the IV solution contained a sodium solution. They argued that that is what contributed to his death. Lacey did not testify or speak at her trial. One month after Lacey's trial began, the verdict was reached. She was found guilty of depraved indifference indifference, murder of a child, depraved indifference murder of a child. Lacey had a history of lying. As I mentioned earlier, she lied about Garnett's father. She also faked her own illnesses throughout her life and tried to pretend that other children were her own. I believe um, in the fellowship, she would be like, oh, this is my daughter. And then the mother was kind of weirded out and like concerned, no, it's not. And then Lacey would be, oh, we're just joking type of thing. She loved drama and attention and the sympathy that she received from others. Lacey was sentenced to 20 years to life in prison. She maintains that she is innocent. This last story is probably the most well-known case of Munchausen by proxy. And there is a recent update, which is why I decided to do this um, bonus episode. Claudine, who went by Didi, was born in Chag Bay, Louisiana, near the Gulf Coast in 1967. Her parents were Claude and Emma. 
She was one of five children and grew up in Golden Meadow, Louisiana. Relatives recalled that she had a habit of stealing from her family, which they speculated was a form of retaliation when things didn't go her way. At some point early in her adult life, she worked as a nurse's aide. When she was 24, she was dating Rod, who was 17. They became pregnant and at the time thought it was for the right reason. They got married. They named their daughter Gypsy Rose because Dee Dee liked the name Gypsy and Rod was a fan of Guns N' Roses. Shortly before Gypsy Rose's birth in July of 1991, the couple separated when Rod realized that he got married for the wrong reasons. Dee Dee tried to get him to return several times, but Rod resisted. Dee Dee moved in with her family. Rod remained involved with his daughter at, the, at this point. Um, by the time Gypsy was three months old, Dee Dee was convinced that the infant had sleep apnea and began taking her to the hospital um, for repeated overnight stays with a sleep monitor and other tests that found no sign of the condition. Dee Dee became convinced that Gypsy had a wide range of health issues, which she thought was an unspecified chromosomal disorder. At some point, she claimed that Gypsy had muscular dystrophy and made her use a walker, and she was fed using a feeding tube. Gypsy often went with her parents to Special Olympic events. In 2001, Gypsy Rose was named the Honorary Queen of a Child-Oriented Parade held during Mardi Gras in New Orleans. Didi claimed Gypsy had, or sorry, Didi claimed Gypsy was eight, but she was actually ten. Gypsy seemed to have stopped going to school after second grade, possibly even as early as kindergarten. Didi homeschooled her after that, supposedly because her illnesses were so severe. This was later believed to have been an attempt to isolate Gypsy. Gypsy managed to learn to read on her own through Harry Potter books. Gypsy's father, Rod, had remarried. Didi lived with her father and stepmother. They would later claim that when she was preparing food for her stepmother, Didi would poison it with weed killer, leading to the stepmother's own chronic illnesses during this period. Didi was arrested for several minor offenses, including writing bad checks. When her father and stepmother began to regularly confront her about her treatment of Gypsy and express their suspicion about her role in her stepmother's health, Didi left um, with Gypsy for the suburb of Slidell outside of New Orleans. <clears throat> Her stepmother's health returned to normal, normal shortly after Didi left. In Sladell, she and Gypsy 
lived in public housing. They paid their bills with Rod's child support payments and received income, or sorry, received income support due to Gypsy's supposed medical conditions. They spent most of their time visiting various specialists. Um, They would seek treatment for the illnesses Didi claimed Gypsy had. And now, she said, Gypsy Rose had hearing and vision problems. One doctor did a muscle biopsy but found no signs of muscular dystrophy. But Didi was successful in securing treatment for her daughter's other issues. She told other doctors Gypsy had seizures every few months, and they prescribed anti-seizure medication. Several surgeries were performed on Gypsy during this time, and Didi regularly took her to the emergency room. After Hurricane Katrina devastated the area in August of 2005, Didi and Gypsy left their ruined apartment for a shelter in Covington, that's a suburb of New Orleans. Um, It was set up for individuals with special needs. Didi said Gypsy's medical records, including her birth certificate, had been destroyed in the flooding. A doctor suggested they relocate Gypsy Rose to Missouri, and the next month they were airlifted there. At first, Didi and Gypsy lived in a rented home in Aurora, and in the south, uh, in the southwestern area of the state. During their time in Aurora, Gypsy was honored by the Olive Foundation as the 2007 Child of the Year. The Olive Foundation advocates for the rights of feeding tube recipients. In 2008, Habitat for Humanity built them a small home with a wheelchair ramp and a hot tub as part of a larger project on their north side of Springfield. The story of a single mother with a severely disabled daughter forced to flee Hurricane Katrina's devastation received a lot of local media attention and the community pitched in to help. The outpouring of support included many charitable contributions. In Louisiana, there were occasional stays in Ronald McDonald's houses. In Missouri, they received free flights to see doctors in Kansas City, free trips to Walt Disney World, and backstage passes to concerts through the Make-A-Wish Foundation. Rod continued to make monthly child support payments of $1,200 a month, as well as sending Gypsy gifts and occasionally talking to her on the phone. During one call on her 18th birthday, Rod recalls Dee Dee telling him not to mention her daughter's real age. She said she thinks she's 14. Rod and his second wife hoped to get together and visit Gypsy, but Didi would always change plans. She told her neighbors that Gypsy Rose's father was an abusive drug addict and alcoholic who had never come to terms with his daughter's health issues, and he never sent them any money. 
Most people who met Gy- Gypsy Rose were charmed by her. She was five feet tall when she wasn't sitting in a wheelchair. She had a nearly toothless smile, large Coke bottle lent glasses, and a high childlike voice. Gypsy often wore wigs and hats to cover her baldness. Her mother regularly shaved Gypsy's head, alleging that the medication would eventually cause her hair to fall out, so it was best just to shave her head. When they left the house, Dee Dee often took an oxygen tank and a feeding tube with them. Gypsy was fed a children's liquid nutri- nutritional supplement through a feeding tube into her 20s. Dee Dee used physical abuse to control her daughter, always holding her daughter's hand in the presence of others. Whenever Gypsy said something that either suggested she was not generally genuinely sick or seemed above her mental capabilities, Gypsy recalls that her mother would give her hand a tight squeeze, and Gypsy knew that she did something wrong. When the two were alone, Didi would hit her with her open hand or with a coat hanger. Didi had some of Gypsy's saliva, gla- saliva glands treated with Botox. Then she had them extracted altogether, to co- apparently to control her drooling. Gypsy later claimed that her mother had applied topical anesthetic to numb her gums before doctor's visits so that she would be drooling uncontrollably. The lack of saliva glands and the side effects of anti-seizure medication caused Gypsy's already few teeth to decay and a majority of her front teeth were extracted and then replaced by a bridge. Tubes were implanted in her ears to control her ear infections. A pediatric neurologist who saw Gypsy in Springfield became suspicious of her muscular dystrophy diagnosis. He recommended, or he requested, sorry, MRIs and blood tests, which found no abnormalities. After contacting Gypsy's doctors in New Orleans, he learned that Gypsy's original muscle biopsy had come back negative. This undermined Dee Dee's diagnosis of muscular dystrophy, as well as her claim that all Gypsy's records had been destroyed by Hurricane Katrina. He suspected, that's the doctor, um, the possibility of Munchausen by proxy. Didi stopped taking Gypsy to see him. He did not report Didi to social services. He said that he had been told by other doctors to treat the pair, quote, with golden gloves. And he doubted that the authorities would believe him anyway once they saw Gypsy Rose. In 2009, an anonymous caller told police about Dee Dee's use of different names and birth dates for herself and Gypsy Rose, and suggested that Gypsy was in better health than Dee Dee claimed. 
Officers who performed the wellness check accepted Didi's explanation that she used the false names to make it harder for her abusive ex-husband to find her in Gypsy. Without talking to Rod, officers reported that Gypsy seemed genuinely mentally disabled and the file was closed. In 2001, Gypsy would attend science fiction and fantasy conventions, kind of like comic expos, sometimes in costume. Gypsy loved it. She could blend in and be like everyone else. Gypsy began using the internet after Dee Dee went to sleep. She created several profiles online and would chat with a lot of men. At an event in 2011, Gypsy was in her early 20s. She made what may have been an escape attempt that ended when her mother found her in a hotel room with a man she had met online. Dee Dee showed paperwork giving Gypsy's false and younger birth date and threatened to inform the police. Gypsy recalls that after that incident, Dee Dee smashed her computer with a hammer and threatened to do the same with her fingers if she tried to escape again. She also kept Gypsy leashed and handcuffed to the bed for two weeks. Dee Dee told Gypsy Rose that she had filed paperwork with the police saying that Gypsy was mentally incompetent leading Gypsy to believe that if she attempted to go to the police for help, they would not believe her. Sometime in 2012, Gypsy continued to use the internet after her mother had gone to bed, and she made contact online with Nicholas, a man around her age from Big Bend, Wisconsin. They met on a Christian singles group. Unknown to Gypsy, Nicholas had a criminal record for indecent exposure. He also had a history of mental illness, and he had autism spectrum disorder. In 2014, Gypsy confided to her neighbor, Aaliyah, that she and Nicholas had discussed eloping and even chose names for their potential children. Aaliyah was 23 and unaware that Gypsy was closer to her age. She considered herself a big sister to Gypsy. Aaliyah tried to talk Gypsy out of it, thinking Gypsy was just too young and possibly being taken advantage of by an online sex predator. Uh, she thought Gypsy's plans were just fantasies and dreams and that nothing would really come of it. The next year, Gypsy arranged for Nicholas to meet her mother in Springfield. She paid for him to come from Wisconsin. Her plan was for the, him to just casually bump into them while they were at a movie theater. Her thought was that Nicholas and Dee Dee would strike up a conversation and a relationship that way. As soon as they met in person for the first time, Nicholas says Gypsy led him to the bathroom 
where the two had sex. That plan failed and they continued their internet relationship and Gypsy began to realize that Dee Dee would never let them be together and they started developing their plan to kill Dee Dee. Nicholas returned to Springfield in June 2015. After Dee Dee had gone to sleep, he went to the house. Gypsy let him in and allegedly gave him duct tape, gloves, and knife with the understanding that he would use them to murder Dee Dee. Gypsy hid, Gypsy hid in the bedroom, or sorry, hid in the bathroom and covered her ears so that she would not have to hear her mother screaming. Nicholas then stabbed Dee Dee 17 times in her back while she was sleeping. Afterwards, the two had sex in Gypsy's room. Before leaving, they took $4,000 in cash that Dee Dee had been keeping in the house, mostly from child support payments. They went to a motel outside of Springfield and stayed there for a few days while planning their next move. During that time, they weren't very discreet and they were seen on security cameras at several local stores. They mailed the murder weapon back to Nicholas's home in Wisconsin to avoid being caught with it. They then took a bus to Big Bend, Wisconsin. Several witnesses who saw the pair on their way to the Greyhound station noted that Gypsy wore a blonde wig and walked unassisted. After seeing a concerning Facebook status posted from Didi's account, friends suspected that something was not right. I believe it said the witch is dead or something like that. When phone calls went unanswered, several friends and neighbors went to the house. They knew that Didi and Gypsy often left on medical trips unannounced, but when they saw Didi's modified car still in the driveway, the explanation of an unannounced trip was unlikely. There was protective film on the windows, so it made it hard to see um, when peering into the window. Uh, when they knocked, no one answered the door, so the gathered friends called 911. When the police arrived, they had to wait for a search warrant to be issued before they could enter the home, that they allowed one of the neighbors to climb through a window to take a quick look. He saw that the house was undisturbed and that all of Gypsy's wheelchairs, oxygen tanks, and feeding tubes were still there, so friends knew something was definitely wrong. When the warrant was issued, police entered the house and soon found Dee Dee's body. All who knew Dee Dee and Gypsy feared the worst. To them, if Gypsy had not been harmed, they believed she would be helpless without her wheelchair, medications, and support equipment like the oxygen tank and the feeding tubes. Aaliyah told police what she knew about Gypsy and her secret online boyfriend. She showed them printouts of conversations Gypsy had given to her 
which included the boyfriend's name. Based on that information, police asked Facebook to trace the IP address from the recent posts on Didi's account. It turned out to be in Wisconsin. And the next day, police raided Nicholas's Big Bend home. Nicholas and Gypsy surrendered and were taken into custody on charges of murder and felony armed criminal action. The news that Gypsy was safe was greeted with relief back in Springfield. Gypsy and Nicholas were soon extradited and held on $1 million bond. When announcing the news, the Greene County Sheriff said, things are not always what they appear. The media in Springfield soon reported the truth. Gypsy had never been sick, but her mother had made her pretend using physical abuse to control her. The Green County Sheriff also urged people not to donate money to the family until investigators learned the extent of the fraud. After the disclosure of how Didi treated Gypsy, sympathy for her as a victim of a violent murder rapidly shifted to her daughter as a long-term victim of child abuse. Under Missouri law, the charge of first-degree murder can carry the death penalty or life without parole. The county prosecutor announced that he would not seek the death penalty for either Gypsy or Nicholas, calling the case extraordinary and unusual. After Gypsy's lawyers obtained her medical records from Louisiana, he secured a plea bargain for second-degree murder. Gypsy was so undernourished up to that point. During the year that she was in the county jail, her lawyer said she had gained 14 pounds. Most of his clients typically lose weight being in that stressful situation. In July 2015, Gypsy Rose accepted the plea bargain and was sentenced to 10 years in prison. There was a notable gasp when Gypsy Rose walked into the courtroom. Her hair was growing out. She didn't have the Coke bottle lens glasses. It was a very different image from what they had seen before. Nicholas still faced more severe charges because he initiated the murder plots and both he and Gypsy agreed that he was the one who actually killed Didi. In January 2017, his trial was postponed when prosecutors requested a second psychiatric exam. His lawyers argued that he had an IQ of 82 and was on the autism spectrum, suggesting that he had diminished capacity. He had initially waived his right to a trial by jury, but then changed his mind in June of 2017. In December 2017, the judge set Nicholas's trial for November 2018. After four days, the case was sent to the jury. 
The jury had the opinion of finding Nicholas guilty of involuntary manslaughter, second-degree murder, first-degree murder, or not guilty. After two hours of deliberation, they returned, and Nicholas was found guilty of first-degree murder and armed criminal action. In February 2019, he was sentenced to life in prison for the murder conviction. The only possible option since um, prosecutors had declined to seek the death penalty. Nicholas asked Judge Jones for leniency on his armed criminal action charge, which carries a minimum sentence of three years, saying that he had blindly, oh, he had fallen blindly in love with Gypsy. He received a sentence of 25 years on that charge, which is concurrent with life sentence. Friends and neighbors, of course, were shocked to learn that Gypsy's illnesses were fabricated, and they wondered if the mother and daughter had actually been secretly laughing at their trust. Dee Dee's family in Louisiana, who had confronted her about her treatment of Gypsy years before, did not regret her death. Her father, stepmother, and nephew said that Dee Dee deserved her fate, and Gypsy had been punished as much as she needed to be. None of them would pay for Dee Dee's funeral. Her father and stepmother ultimately flushed her ashes down the toilet. Rod, Gypsy's father, was more forgiving. He thinks Dee Dee's problem started with a web of lies and that there was no escaping once she started. He was happy the first time he saw a video of Gypsy walking on her own. Gypsy Rose said, I feel like I'm more free in prison than living with my mom because now I'm I'm allowed to live just like a normal woman. Gypsy, now serving her sentence in a Missouri Correctional Center, uh, did not talk to the media until after she made her plea bargain. Because this uh, disorder is a psychological one, it's difficult to know if Dee Dee actually had the disorder. Gypsy had been able to research Munchausen by proxy on prison computers and agreed that her mother had every symptom. Gypsy believed that she actually did have cancer, even though she knew she could walk and eat solid food, and she endured the regular head shavings. At first, she listened and believed what her mother told her. She said that she always hoped that doctors would see through the ruse, and she was frustrated that only one doctor did. When asked what made her want to escape her situation, Gypsy recalled the 2011 incident at the science fiction convention, which made her wonder why she was not allowed to have friends like others her age. She said that Nicholas took their idle discussions of murder into reality, but she accepts that she committed a crime and has to live with the consequences, and she hopes to help other abused victims. According to experts, 
Victims of Munchausen by proxy abuse often avoid doctors and hospitals in their later lives because of the lingering trust issues. According to her family, Gypsy sometimes exhibits the same sociopathic, manipulative behaviors as her mother, which is understandable because, like most of her life, was um, her mother was her only role model. Friends and family hope that with positive influences, Gypsy will exhibit more positive behaviors. Post-traumatic stress disorder is likely to be an issue with her continuing development. In April 2019, Gypsy was engaged to a man named Ken. They met through a pen pal program at her prison but they called off the engagement a few months later. Her family friends said that Gypsy was dating multiple men while in prison. On June 27, 2022, Gypsy married Ryan. Ryan is from Lake Charles, Louisiana. It's not currently clear how the couple met or what Ryan does for a living, but they're married. As of 2023, Gypsy is 32 years old, and she said in interviews from prison that she feels more free behind bars than she ever was when she lived with her mother. Gypsy will be released from prison on December 29th, 2023. There have been several documentaries and interviews on this case. Um, HBO produced a documentary called Mommy Dead and Dearest. Um, it has interrogation footage and interviews from Nicholas and Gypsy Rose. Um, and it premiered May 15th, 2017. Dr. Phil had an episode, Mother Knows Best, a story of Munchausen by proxy and murder. Again, it featured interviews with Gypsy Rose with Rod, her stepmother, uh, Gypsy Rose's stepmother. Um, that was November 21st, 2017. Um, 2020 had Gypsy's case and also had an interview with Nicholas. The Investigation Discovery Channel had a series called Murder is Forever, um, an episode called Mother of All Murders, Season 1, Episode 2, was ja- premiered January 29th, 2018. Uh, Discovery, or Investigation Discovery also had a two-hour special documentary titled Gypsy's Revenge. Gypsy Rose was interviewed while she was incarcerated. Um, she describes the relationship with her mother. Gypsy's father, relatives, and friends were interviewed along with public officials and Nicholas. There was, um, Love You to Death aired on Lifetime in January 2019. It dramatized the case, um, as inspired by true events. And I got a, uh, subscribe to Hulu. In 2019, the streaming service Hulu announced a true crime series called The Act. 
It was an eight-episode miniseries based on the case. Joey King was cast as Gypsy Rose and received an Emmy nomination for her performance, and actress Patricia Arquette was cast as Dee Dee and won an Emmy for her performance. And that premiered March the 20th, 2019. Psychotherapy is the most effective treatment for addressing the root cause of this disorder. However, uh, individuals with any form of Munchausen by proxy rarely admit that they have the disorder. People usually deny that they did anything wrong and they resist treatment. If the individual does agree to treatment, a pro, um, approaches may include um, sorry, congenitive behavior therapy, family therapy, group therapy, and therapy for related conditions like depression, anxiety, and personality disorders. Medication is not effective for factitious order disorders. Sometimes doctors may prescribe medications for related conditions like depression or anxiety, but they must be closely monitored when taking the medication because they may use it inappropriately to harm themselves or others. Munchausen by proxy cases are rare but extremely serious disorders. That was a really long podcast episode, and I, I hope you enjoyed it. Thank you so much for listening.